I'm inviting people to open our minds and hearts more fully to what darkness actually is and how darkness has been viewed by so many spiritual traditions across the globe as an instigator of spiritual growth and a deep source of restoration and regeneration. Hey everyone, it's Mind Rolling, back for another episode. I'm Raghu, and I'm happy to uh, have with me uh, Deborah Eden Tull. And Deborah has been on Mind Rolling. When was it, Deborah? And welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And our last conversation was around the release of my last book, Relational Mindfulness. So, oh, yeah, right. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So it's yeah. about, a, what, a year and a half ago or something? A Mark? couple of years back. A couple of years, yeah. yeah. A lot of water under the bridge from you that moment to this. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, well, we're going to talk about Deborah's new book, uh, Luminous Darkness. There's some really great stuff in here, Deborah. Thank you for putting it together. Uh but uh, the weird thing is, you moved where I moved from, and you were uh, like in in uh, California, in Ojai, and then you. I find this all out through the book. I mean, I remember that you had moved to Black Mountain, but uh, yeah, we did a little bit of switch on that. We've one. traded places from the yeah. Asheville area to Ojai, and vice versa. Two yeah. equally magical places in their own way. Yeah. True. Yeah. Yeah. Warmer here, though. Maybe too, you yes. said, like, too warm. And that's why one of the Perhaps. reasons. Perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, tell me how, what was the uh, the gestation of this book and, and the intention and how it arose? Can you tell yeah. me that? Yeah. It was quite a beautiful process. Um, this book was born between two retreats that I was leading. First, one in Big Sur where I had a mystical experience under the night sky. Some listeners will know the uh, magic of the Big Sur coastal night sky. And something happened there where I received a transmission about darkness as our great spiritual teacher that really sent me into kind of a spin internally into a gestation period myself, continuing to receive this transmission for a few weeks. And I found myself next guiding a retreat in Santa Cruz at Land of Medicine Buddha. And a student asked on the final night, can you please share advice for us regarding navigating the pain of our world? And something came up that was a term I hadn't heard before. Um, I shared that I felt it was time to embrace the path of endarkenment alongside enlightenment. And that's what gave birth to this book, hmm. ultimately. Seems yeah. pretty direct. What yeah. was a little bit more detail on the initial experience? It was an experience of, well, I'll back up and I'll share that I'm someone who has um, many decades of meditation practice and practice of animism that's allowed me to 
really understand our capacity to listen to the natural world and to receive communications from other forms of life. But I had never received communication from a star. And that's what happened in this experience. And it's one of those kinds of things, yes, that doesn't make any sense. That's not a rational mind experience. And Mm -hmm. yet you palpably through every cell in your body recognize what's happening. And it was a kind of, um, a kind of conversation, the kind that happens through beyond words, metaphor and image and, Something happened there in the dark yeah. of the night. <laughs> Ramdas would say imagination. Imagination is a big piece. The mm. conscious use of our imagination yeah. is one yeah, of the yeah. topics in this book. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's terrific. And it wasn't, there was no uh, ethnogens involved, right? Nothing external involved. Just mm-hmm. a deep meditation retreat. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, I, there's one little poem in the book, which that you know that gets across stuff that's not rational, probably better than anything I would say. Yes. Um, and uh, I don't know if this poem is—is is this a chapter head? I'm not sure. It's the verdant cavern of the underworld, or that may be the title of the poem. In order to rise from its own ashes, a phoenix first must burn. And uh, who wrote that is a woman named Octavia Butler, who I've never heard of, but this is a fabulous, right on, you know, uh, in a few words, saying what it is. She's an extraordinary, she was an extraordinary African-American writer and visionary, I would say. Hmm. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's some we uh, we should investigate a little bit further because that's just terrific. But um, yeah, just the basic premise, like the the one of the premises that darkness is something many of us fear and and we avoid and uh, and are not able to embrace all of what it it really uh, represents. Uh, In my own case, though, I find darkness so very attractive, more about the way in which in in deep darkness, or not even deep, in darkness, the facility uh, to um, go within really gets enhanced. And maybe it's my my own penchant for cave-like atmospheres. <laughs> and uh, the reality is, though, that there is a definitive comfortableness for me in that place. And on the other side of things, forget about waking up with light in the morning, that you might as well conk me over the head, uh, you know, <laughs> then have me do that, uh, you know, uh, Blackout, give me blackout shades and and eye masks, you know. And so there's a way in which I still am obviously reconciling light and dark. So talk about that. Sure. So in my experience, nature is our greatest teacher. And I, similar to you, uh, have shared throughout life such an attraction to dark places and 
caves and the immensity of the night sky. And in this book, I'm inviting people to open our minds and hearts more fully to what darkness actually is and how darkness has been viewed by so many spiritual traditions across the globe as an instigator of spiritual growth and a deep source of restoration and regeneration. But I make the point that the dominant paradigm is holding the unconscious bias that darkness is the absence of light, that darkness is less than light, that we are trying to, both through our obsession with the rational mind, through the overlighting of planet Earth, which the LA Times just posted an interesting article about right. yesterday, to the kind of fixation that sometimes gets confused uh, with enlightenment as an end or a goal to attain. That spiritual, a lot of that, in, in spiritual terms you're speaking. Yes, yeah. yes. That all of that is swimming around human consciousness. And so I'm inviting people to investigate and explore more deeply um, what darkness actually is, if not the absence of light, similar to how in meditation we're invited to explore beyond our sense that emptiness is the absence of something. What is it the presence mm, of? Yeah. 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 Good. Yeah. That's a good uh, reference, actually, emptiness, because there's the fear of that uh, as much as there is fear of darkness. Yes. And, uh, and, and it's just um, wrong conception, a nihilistic view of, nothingness as as bob thurman says often there is no there's no possibility of nothingness for, you've you got know. it yeah, yeah so as the book is titled luminous darkness we can also speak of fertile emptiness right mm. and yet many people another way that we can think of darkness is the unseen the invisible the formless we can think of darkness as the yin, slow, still aspect of nature. And again, in the dominant paradigm, a lot of that is, let's try to push that away and mm -hmm. keep up our fixation on speed and light and rational knowing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. all part of that fabric. Yeah. I must say, though, that... Uh, you know, people might think, well, okay, this is uh, this book is is great. It's really allowing me to address the darkness psychologically, emotionally that I push away inside myself. And then you think of uh, Deborah, who wrote this book, and you, you might imagine that in in her past, like in all of our past, uh, we have stuff from socioeconomic conditions, family conditions, mostly family conditions, uh, that always uh, um, renders this the real uh, adversity for us to uh, transform in our lives. So then I'm reading this book, and I come to the part, which I don't think we discussed last time, and it was about uh, your your growing up and your parents, particularly your father. If I had a father like you had, okay, I wouldn't be as crazy as I am. I know it for sure, for sure. 
you got to tell everybody about your father, okay, in detail. Yeah. I think yeah. it's extraordinary. Yeah. I have, I've heard about this with one other uh, friend of mine, uh, wh whose father mentored him the way your father meant. Yeah. But go, please yeah. tell that story. Yeah, well, I'm. I have tears arising right now just as I presence my dad because I mm. I lost him when I was eleven. But up until that age, I had um, an incredible, incredible father and my first spiritual teacher. So he was really a beacon in our community. He was a contemplative Christian. My mom was Jewish. We were a mixed Jewish Christian mm. household. I had hippie parents, and he was really deeply on an embodied spiritual path. And so as kids, um, they basically said to us, the form that your spirituality takes is up to you. You can let that unfold, but we want to underline that it's going to be the most important thing in your life. And so he would read to us from the Tao Te Ching and Krishnamurti. <laughs> and do I find that so funny? The I early don't know. stories of the Buddha. There you are in Ojai where... Um, <laughs> Krishnamurti was based, and mm. so many different beautiful inspirations. Uh, Jonathan Living Siegel by Richard Bach, and mm. spent a lot of time with us, just really uh, helping us to understand um, our relationship with life at a deeper level and to ask bigger questions. And mm. so, I talk about uh, my dad in this book, and then also. In the experience of his death, so he found out one day when I was 11 years old that he had one month left to live, just out of the blue, which was shocking because he lived also such a healthy life and was such a vibrant being. Mm. But mm. watching the way that he brought his life to a close, which unfolded over three months, mm. for me as a kid, that informed my entire path going on. Number one, there was the teacher of impermanence, the avalanche of impermanence, mm. being hit with that reality and recognizing that our time here is short. And number two, seeing someone who had an embodied practice bring their life to a close, even alongside the devastation we were all going through with grace and love and beauty. Mm. It was an extraordinary wow. experience. He hosted gatherings at our home for people to process the grief of his death. It was, it was phenomenal. Wow. <laughs> so that really informed a big part of my path going forth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Grace. Yeah. Big time. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And and you say what he uh, taught, how he taught you, what he taught you to live by: right relationship, kindness, service, integrity, and reverence for nature and spirit. And uh, when you talk about uh, what the the L.A. Times did something around enlightenment, I'd actually around the overlighting of the planet. Oh, oh, I see impact. Yeah. yeah, but on on an individual enlightenment basis, you know, people get on the spiritual path, and we're, yep, we're going to go for enlightenment. Yeah. I think go for right relationship, kindness, service, integrity, and a reverence for nature and spirit. That's enlightenment. I'm totally you know, forget with that you. other bullshit. You know, uh, Ramdas. I don't know how many times he told his story of of being with Neem Karoli Baba, and. Saying, okay, give me the, an, I, I've told this story a billion, every time I tell it, I go, wow, yeah, it is so present 
and it needs that redundancy as far as I'm concerned, because what Ramdas wanted was the secret keys to immediate enlightenment, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and when he first asked, how do I raise Kundalini or whatever, and Maharaji Neem Karoli Baba said, feed people. And he thought this was the most ticky-tack response. All of his friends were with these incredible lamas, and they were all getting secret teachings and elaborate mantra <laughs> initiations. So he, he, he put it a different way. I don't know how. You, you know, I, how do I get to one with God? Whatever way he put it. And uh, Maharaji said, love everyone. And at that point, of course, it broke Ramdas's uh, brick for a brain that we all have that we depend on more than anything else, uh, and and unfortunately don't recognize it till a little bit later along the path. He got it. He got it. That's it's not about me. It's about what can we do. What service can we do? So yeah. yeah. You, yes. you lucked out. Well, and I would also share, as I talk about in the book, uh, my mother, uh, to balance my father out, was a, a very fiery, dedicated activist. They were both mm. um, wow. social workers. But when I was six years old, and we were living in L.A., um, not necessarily always able to afford grocery ourselves. We'd, groceries <laughs> ourselves, we didn't have a lot of money. We lived simply. Mm. But my mom read an article in the LA Times about the plight of children in Skid Row and homelessness. And she raised hell within the next two weeks, managed to um, have a meeting with the mayor <laughs> managed to raise funds and began her first of four nonprofits serving, serving systemic homelessness. And Jesus. so my, my family had a unique LA experience, which also formed my path of collaborating with people in service, service mm. as the priority. And I certainly also got to see the challenges activists face and the plight of bureaucracy along those efforts. But it was an extraordinary, I wouldn't have changed a thing about how I grew up in that context. Say the and, least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. It's very hopeful <laughs> for uh, that our children start to have more of that experience would be a hopeful sign, I think. And I'm I mean with collectively. you. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. Um, so there is something to maybe explain out a little bit. Hierarchical, hierarchical perception is the root of delusion beneath every ism we face as a species. And uh, this is under enlightenment is neither an end nor a goal. And we, of course, just talked about that a little bit. But can you talk about that? Uh, I don't think that I... Uh, I, 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 th- I do think, rather, that this is part of the endemic runaway train of divide, particularly, well, in the world, but in this country, it's so pronounced. Um, So I think there's something to relate with what we're going through around this concept. Yes, and I love that phrase, the endemic runaway train of divide. Um, That's what we're experiencing. So one of the things I've always loved about 
meditation practice, even from like the first retreat I ever did um, after high school was just this the experience of returning to um, I know what Dogen, the 12th century founder yeah. of Soto Zen describes as original consciousness, connection to source, return to source. And always experience this as simply a return to our capacity to see life clearly as it is, free of the overlay of duality, free of the overlay of hierarchical perception. This is good. That is bad. This is inferior. That is superior. Uh, dark versus light with one higher than the other. So, so much of what I see is I've always through meditation observed the patterns within myself and my own ego and the collective ego and the isms we're facing is the extreme impact of hierarchical perception on our world, mm. on our relationships with each other, on how we perceive ourselves. And sometimes when people come to practice with me, ju just can be fun to get out one's journal and to practice even for simply an hour or longer, witnessing the mind's tendency towards hierarchical perception, just that habit of the conditioned mind, that overlay. And I always invite people into that with a compassionate and light heart, right? Because mm -hmm. it can be hard to see. But it is my sense that every ism we're facing comes down to that seed, that seed that perception lens. And one of the things I love about the teacher of darkness, even just recognizing that when we close our eyes for meditation, when we close our eyes to rest, there is a way that the lens of, we might say the mind of separation and discrimination is somewhat affiliated with light and the notion of what we see is what we get and what's surface and uh, is real. And that we are often labeling things and comparing and measuring things as a way of trying to understand them. And that in the darkness, I would suggest metaphorically and symbolically, we're invited to perceive from a deeper place from the heart. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. Because you're, yeah. you're cutting out all of the visual and audi auditory perceptions and so on, uh, the projections. Uh, you're, it's, uh, that's why they have those sensory uh, tank things, whatever. <laughs> right. right, you got I it. I mean, as a practice. Uh, yeah. But uh, what uh, certainly the cutting through of the the du the dual uh, feeling inferior, feeling superior, which is really to me at the root of this divide. Mm -hmm. I mean, no matter what. I mean, even considering the reality of uh, lack of education in is is a big part of this and but even with that uh, just the the way in which it's knee jerk reaction for us to immediate look first of all we're separating people out into categories but one of the the most harmful to me is this absolutely is the inferiority superiority Yes, yes. And that we're doing it with all of life. We're doing it with the more than human world. I said that just as your, is that your dog friend who just walked in to join us? dog friend just came in. <laughs> She's part of the uh, podcast on a weekly. Fabulous. 
welcome. <laughs> um, but acknowledging the way that we do that equally with the natural world, uh, humans as superior, uh, nature as inferior for us to use. It's just, again, this knee-jerk response. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah. particularly. It's, it hurts when you even say it. Nature yeah. is inferior, and we can we need to control it, and we need to plunder it. I mean, it, yeah, it's, it's and it's really so delusional. Difficult. Just another thread of the trance of separation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, part of this whole uh, in this particular section, of course, uh, is addressing spiritual bypassing, which many of us talk about uh, quite a lot because, uh, to some degree, we are all doing it. It's you know in relation to everything in relation to everything and even just take the environment uh, where we have found ways to think that we, we can contribute by separating our garbage and then we're completely cut off from from reality at the, at the same time that kind of bypassing is is becoming very difficult and i see myself in it I see the way I, the defense mechanisms I have to protect myself from the emotional pains, for instance. And yet, uh, there's a laziness there as well. And I think that collective laziness is, is a, a big part of, uh, of, of the issue and the problem. Yes, yes. And I think related, there's a, a laziness to putting into the category of darkness, everything that we find uncomfortable, that we don't like, that we want to get away from by putting it into the category of darkness, even trash, for instance, to use a mm. natural resource example for what you yeah. were just talking about. We justify getting to turn away from it. We justify getting to put it over there. But there is no over there. There is no away where our trash goes, actually, uh, just into landfills that pollute our planet. And there is no away that we put um, emotions or ancestral karmic issues, shadows that we wish we could avoid. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, we're doing this on a day-to-day -day basis in all aspects of our lives. Uh, that it, you know, it's a big trap. We're on the spiritual path, but we're ignoring a lot. As, uh, which is why um, I like to do podcasts with Buddhist psychotherapists. Actually, they're uh, quite wonderful, and um, they usually end up doing some kind of therapy <laughs> with me. <laughs> Um, Mark uh, Epstein being uh, one of them. I don't. Do you know who Mark is? I do. Yeah, yeah. 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 He's got an exceptional uh, way of uh, characterizing uh, the mess that we create for ourselves. Mm. Um, but can you just tell a little bit about uh, your uh, your history and your time spent practicing Zen in a very rigorous atmosphere? And uh, you do tell the story uh, that there, there was one, at one point, uh, you went through personal transformations full of both discovery and terror. Uh, I think you remember that time uh, in your life. Uh, and I, uh, the headline for me in this reading through this and, and uh, recognizing myself in it as well, years past, um, but the the fear of the unknown, the uh, that 
perceive change as loss. I think that's extraordinarily uh, important. So, but maybe characterize it by what was, what were you going through? Well, first I would share that the title of that part of the book is called Befriending the Night. And I think of both the night that all of us on the spiritual path are asked to face as we go through our own transformation. We have to face the absolute unknown as we let go of the familiar self, our fixed identity, the comfort of how we had seen ourselves. The story we tell ourselves, right? You got it. And simultaneously, collectively, that we are facing the absolute unknown, a greater degree of uncertainty than any of our ancestors faced. Mm. And so this invitation to befriend the night, to recognize that the night is here, and there's um, tremendous Mm. invitation to learn how to befriend the unknown. So for me, that time, I was 26 when I moved to the monastery, and I had already been meditating for quite some time and was really on a path as a young person of trying to quote unquote uh, save the world and just recognize <laughs> yeah he laughs pretty um early no, on I was there I'm not I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm with you big yeah. time when I went yeah. to India yeah and I just remember recognizing that even alongside these incredible projects that I was drawn to and part of. And I got to work for a couple of my heroes during that time. Uh, mm. Came upon the work of Joanna Macy. Oh, yes. Uh, really we must young. mention she is phenomenal. And, She's phenomenal. Yeah. And she changed my life from a young age with mm. the book World is Lover, World is Self. But I recognize that even in some of the amazing projects I was involved in both environmental and social justice work, there was just a lot of human ego. (laughs) There was a lot of human ego getting in the way. And it was this experience of nature seems to have all the answers that we need. And yet the human ego seems to find myriad ways to come in and disrupt (laughs) efforts and Again, the phrase get in the way. So that was part of what called me to become a Buddhist monk and also the recognition that my own um, egoic structure, my own survival strategies, it became more and more painful the more I meditated to see how they operated and how they kept me from sort of a deeper um, peace and intimacy with life. So when I first moved there, I talked about we were not just a monastery in the wilderness, but also off the grid, uh, center of sustainability. So as soon as the lights, as, as soon as the sun went down, we were in vast Sierra wilderness darkness. And I remember it feeling like the deepest, darkest nights I had ever been part of. And so we lived in silence and then spent a number of hours of each day, night in the dark. And there was this connection between how I felt internally, like letting go of who I thought I was and being willing to um, deepen my practice while at the same time noticing parts of me wanting to cling (laughs) to old belief systems, the familiar, the known. It was really a a push-pull sometimes, and yet this tendril of courage kept me on my path doing the work. And what was beautiful is something about befriending the physical night and just falling in love with 
the darkness of the night and even having some experiences that I talk about in the book of uh, literally an experience where I felt my ego dissolve into the darkness of the night. Mm. I felt completely one with it and something changed in my practice then. But it allowed me to then be able to befriend those parts of me that I had judged and deemed as dark those parts of me that I had traditionally pushed away or just felt were always somehow going to be more inferior to the more mindful parts of me or whatever standards we're using. And so a real healing began to took place to take place. And um, this befriending the night theme, I think offers value to a lot of people right mm. now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. absolutely. Uh, and of course, when we talk about, um, the potential for making friends on many different levels with darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do we get there? And to me, the, uh, there's no way without uh, talking about mindfulness. And uh, you have this great poem in the book by, uh, is it Ryan? Um, no, it's by Rilke. Yeah. Rainer Maria Rilke, you darkness of whom I am born, I love you more than the flame that limits the world to the circle it illuminates and excludes all the rest. But the dark embraces everything, shapes and shadows, creatures and me, people, nations, just as they are. It lets me imagine a great presence Stirring beside me, I believe in the night. He's so great. He's so great. Again, as I said before, mm-hmm. there's nothing like a, a poem to really get at the heart. Yes. Of, of what, and uh, just to share, that poem came to me because I was having tea with Joanna Macy at her home in Berkeley, sharing with her this vision that was emerging for this book. And she got really excited and said, hold on, wait. And she went to her colorful, magical bookshelf that I'm always mesmerized with and pulled out Rilke's The Night and read it to me. And I remember my first uh, response was, do I even need to write this book? (laughs) He always says all of it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really. Yeah. yeah. But let's talk about uh talk a little bit about mindfulness uh, uh as a it's translated to remember. And yeah. Yeah. Well, this is an important aspect of the book's teachings. Um my my weekly meditation group is called Remembering the Already Awakened State because there can be such a false understanding at least early on in people's practice that mindfulness is something that exists uh, outside of me that I need to work hard to attain or that enlightenment, again, is an end or a goal. If I work hard enough, if I strive hard enough, I can attain it. And just the basic recognition that practice is about remembering who and what we already are, who and what we actually are, remembering the backdrop of spacious presence that already always exists. And so this notion of remembering does have a lot to do with darkness because 
darkness is a teacher of receptivity, of giving ourselves permission to slow down, to soften the doing, the efforting, the striving, the trying to get somewhere, and just surrendering to receptivity, being here in the moment, deep listening within and out. And I could share so many stories, but in my own practice of the significance of recognizing that it was in efforting less, it was in doing less and settling into the receptivity that was innate within me, that everything I was looking for was already there. And the reason it was so big is because growing up in the world I grew up in and perhaps also as a woman and there was so much conditioning. It was like you have to push and work hard and get past all your shadows. And in order to get there, you have to strive and effort. So I think a lot of humans are bringing mental effort to things that actually require uh, no mental effort and avoiding this innate receptivity. Yeah. Yeah. Does that relate with your own experience? Yeah. Surrender is uh, a very powerful word and a very powerful reality and practice. And uh, when Ramdas's uh, Indian brother, who was named K.K. Shah, he died right after Ramdas, literally a month or so. He, he actually said, I'm not going on without him. That's how close they were. Wow. And... Uh, he was with Neem Karoli Baba from the time he was seven. Mm. He died when he was mid, later 80s. So uh, I asked him to come, because he came a few times to our to visit with Ram Dass in Maui and to our retreats that we had there. And I asked, you know, and he would get up with Ram Dass and talk about Dharma. Uh, and one of the things I asked him, I said, you know, we have a very convoluted uh, relationship to the word surrender here in the West. And he said, you have no idea what surrender. You think it's you, meaning collective Westerners, think it's it's an object and that you, you take something and you do something uh, and, you, and you're giving something up. And it, 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 it is so wrong-headed uh it, and he so the the um he basically transmitted the what uh, it is in uh, in hindu um religious lore and, mm. and in the bhakti tradition particularly and it's called sharanagat and it's it's the highest form uh before there's no form in terms of duality, it's where you get, if this happens, poop, you're whatever, you're poof. And it's, it's about no choice. It just, it's, it comes from the deepest part of yourself. And my best example of it uh, was uh, when I first went to India and I met up with Ramdas at, uh, at another ashram with another guru. And everybody was bowing and touching their feet. And I was like, yuck, yucky. I'm 20, 
three, four years old, right? And not experienced <laughs> any of this. And Ramdas, I said, what is this about? He said, well, it's the divine in you, honoring the divine in them. And if you have a problem, this is good, good stuff to work with, you know, as Ramdas, as you would think he would say. Yeah. I went back the next day, same thing. I just had no relationship with the moment of surrender. I, of course, I was so naive that I didn't understand that that surrender was deep. It was inside me. It wasn't outside me. Yeah. I couldn't connect that at all. So it was just my whole mind was flummoxed by this. So I, anyhow, I ended up going up and uh, Ram Dass had given me a note, note from the teacher to go meet the, <laughs> the principal, which was uh, Neem Karoli Baba. And that happened. Anyhow, but what happened is he, uh, so we were just sitting out waiting for him to come out from his inner room and he came out and the, the door banged open and this big blanket Baba came out and, I had nothing, there was no thought, I just went flat on the floor in front of that thing. It was way beyond any mental anything, and, it would, and there's no concept of surrender or anything like that. It's just like the, the, the divine presence I just, was recognizing it, it was just recognizing it and it was all over it wasn't in outside me you know it was yes. in everything yes that kind of surrender is difficult for for us in the in the west to consider because we're we're mostly on defense about you know giving up your power to anybody yes and and yet the story you're describing is the the ultimate power of shared power uh, power yeah. of the divine. So I love that story. Interconnection yeah. with yes. absolutely everything. Yeah. Um, and, and I love, you just mentioned it, Deborah, you know, talking about receptivity and you talk about it as a path for a relational intelligence. And it's mm -hmm. interesting because we're, we're doing a uh, retreat uh, in Maui. Actually, we continue legacy retreats, we call them and, you know, have all of our friends, Jack and, Sharon, you know, whoever can come and Christian does. Um, and it's this particular theme is going to be about relationship, interconnectivity, and interbeing. That's what we're hoping we can expand on. So I'm looking at this receptivity and uh, yeah, just uh, deep listening. Uh, is so important. There's a famous quote from Simone Wilde, the most generous thing you can do for another human is be completely present in the moment with them, you know, listen. Yes, yes. So, yeah, talk about that a little bit. I love that quote. Um, deep listening simply cannot be undervalued. And yeah, deep listening... absolutely. As a practice that extends within ourself, with others, and as I talk about in this book, with every form of life, uh, you know, sometimes people are going along doing what I call shallow listening, listening perhaps caught to the narrative in their own minds or appearing to listen to someone else, but really listening to your own uh, assessment of what they're saying. So mm, it, deep yeah, listening yeah. means cutting through all of that and dropping into our innate receptivity. And it's so counterintuitive. Um, 
and deep listening and meditation for relational intelligence, that what is most required of us is softening effort and resting more in this place of receptivity. Receptivity, uh, there's a lot I say about it in the book, but, you know, we think of it as um, the receptive aspects of our nature are uh, expressions of gentleness. It's more the yin aspect of nature. Mm. And yet I believe receptivity is our greatest source of power, shared power, the power that heals from the power over paradigm to power with that I'm fully with you, fully present, whether it's another being, whether it's a tree, whether it's resting with uh, consciousness itself. But I feel like it's such important medicine in today's world because <laughs> if children were taught to uh, strengthen their receptivity, to honor and celebrate their receptivity, and instead we're focusing a lot on the other side, uh, expression, opinion, how to win an argument or debate. Yeah. Yeah. And in other words, how to relate through othering rather than yeah. interbeing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and back to uh, when we were talking about surrendering, and you yeah. talk about surrendering to uh, slow down, slowing down. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's a, another huge uh, impediment for all of us in the West. Uh, the speed at which we feel so committed to, and uh, this is, here I am, prime offense, you know, doing all the different kinds of things and, you know, grew up with a father who made sure we were going to be responsible for getting it done, kind of, that's where I came from. And... Um, by the way, a completely opposite of your father, my father. <laughs> I mean, a World War II bomber pilot, PTSD'd out, think, thought he wasn't afraid of dying, though completely disconnected to the core of who, of who he was. Yeah. Um, but I ended up okay because uh, this is a famous story. I won't even tell the story except to say, Maharaji threw dynamite at him, which was basically asking me if I had given him uh, what Ramdas gave him, yogi medicine. And I went, acid? Are you? My father went, LSD? And he ended up taking it, and he had a death trip. And then Maharaji finished him off when he saw him a, a week or 10 days later to the point where that was the beginning of a relationship that completely turned around for me. So wow. it ended up, yes, but the first part, no, nothing at all like that. So, but back to the, um, the whole idea that fast is way better than slow, and that's how we live uh, is a great um, point to make in, 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 that you do in this book. Yeah, it's another expression of light and the yang are superior to dark and the yin and the slow. And yeah. It's again part of receptivity and the feminine that we need to um, move away from, of course, every the patriarchal blah, blah. So, yeah, both of these things, right? The, the receptivity yes. and, and uh, slowing down. These are all very well pointed. 
And and just to underline for for listeners that it's true in this day and age, there's more for us to address in terms of the unconscious biases and the systems that need healing in our world. And yet, if we address those things from the sped up marketplace mentality of just focusing on rational mind and doing, I think we miss a beat. So receptivity is also what I consider the strongest foundation for um, being a change agent, for being a skillful agent of change, for mm. engaging in our world in useful rather than reactive ways, for being a spiritual activist, uh, which is part of my life. Receptivity is a powerful force of nature. So just to remind people of that. Yeah. And I think more humans are embracing uh, what we might call more feminine ways of leadership and uh, the power of yin. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, I uh, we're getting close to the end of the podcast, but when we talk about mindfulness and its translation, the Pali translation, translation to remember, and we work with ourselves that way, not from the judgmental part, which is why Ram Dass's thing of loving awareness, being able to open yourself up into a place where it's not uh, a witness, um, judge and jury of the mind of, of what is going on and what your motivations are. It's it's a much more generous place that, that really has to be accessed from the core of our being we call the spiritual heart whatever you want to call it and and it, there is a way just through breath to be able to move into that and uh that perspective uh, can really help change a life but uh so that's around mindfulness which is extraordinarily important then you have this this practice that i came upon in the book Listening to a tree, it's called. And um, it's something I just naturally have... Uh, in, in fact, it, it started out when I lived in North Carolina. And I found a tree that I completely related to. And I, I would run my dogs by there in a small forest next to the house and all. And... Uh, I'm going to just read this a little bit because it's a great exercise, uh, if you don't mind. Sure. Um, step outdoors and allow yourself to be drawn to a tree that you can sit quietly and comfortably by. Greet this tree either with words or by offering your respect energetically. Close your eyes or put on a blindfold. Practice deep listening to this form of life. Let go of any agenda or expectation. Once you have listened for a while, you might ask a question about something you are seeking guidance on from this tree. You might receive information through words, metaphors, images, or a feeling in your body. Just be opening to receiving and ask yourself, what do you notice? And I'll say in my own case of sitting with this particular tree, that's why this, this jumped out at me, because I, I didn't 
it, it wasn't even a practice, uh, you know, a formal anything. It was like, I just, oh, wow, here you are. And I would just sit down. It was the same as uh, basically the story I just told about Neem Karoli Baba and just having no choice but to flatten myself on the ground. It, uh, it was awe. It's awe. And it's a natural thing. And there was this tree. The, there's the, the Himalaya, you know, which I've spent a lot of time in. And sitting in front of that is no different. It's completely interconnected. And it's, it's so easy for a person to get out in nature and just, you'll be drawn to a tree. A tree, and the tree is so deeply rooted. It's so symbolic in so many different ways you'll be drawn to a tree where you can have uh, practice some of the things that are in Deborah's book, mm. which mm. is available now, isn't it? And we have to do a little commercial for the book, right? Yes. Thank you. And I love that you shared the, the tree practice. Yeah. Spent a lot of time. Everyone can do it. Conversation with trees. Yeah. 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 yeah me too. Absolutely. And just waking up from the anthropocentric <laughs> uh, view of being yeah. human. Yeah. So, yeah, the book comes out September 27th. I'm not sure oh. exactly what day this will air. Uh-huh. So this, yeah, well, we're almost at the end of September in 2022. Yes. So it'll coincide with its available. Oh, that's perfect timing on this Beautiful. podcast. Eh? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, um, thank you for putting this together. There's far more uh, beautiful and poignant and enlightening um, messages in this book. And also, Deborah put herself into it in terms of her own story, which is the best way, in my mind, for people to be able to gather this without feeling like, uh, you didn't go through this? Yeah, no, no. We all went through this. We all go through the same thing, basically. Except, Deborah, you just had that dad, though. That was, and mom, my, yeah. You got to be waking up every morning with gratitude on that one, even even though the truth is, I'm sure it was really difficult to lose him at a, such a young age. But uh, Yes, and it was somehow part of his teaching, and I do wake up in gratitude. About mm. it every day. Yeah. So yeah. nice to see you again. You too. Great to reconnect. Yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for wonderful. Me. Everybody, the, uh, all of the links and everything will to Deborah's books and this and luminous darkness in particular will be on the show notes page and uh, some of the other things that we talked about and poems that we read. We should put a, you guys are doing this out there. Do something with connecting people to Rilke. That's, uh, he's phenomenal. Uh, This is Mind Rolling on Be Here Now Network. Go to BeHereNowNetwork.com and catch all the wonderful thought leaders and teachers, many of whom Deborah and I share in common in terms of uh, our love. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Thank you.